Well, good morning, everybody. Did you notice the white stuff that was falling down from the sky yesterday? I think winter is here. And um, it's kind of interesting because my uh, sister-in-law and niece came up from Charleston, South Carolina, so I wanted to know why they brought the cold weather with them. But uh, they, got, they were in for a treat as they saw. We were sitting in the living room, and all of a sudden the snow started coming down, and they went, oh, you know, so we all went outside. So uh, what's that? We all went. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shades of things to come. But, uh, uh, but we're so glad that we're able to gather inside where it's nice and warm, where we can worship the Lord together. Uh, this past week, of course, we celebrated Veterans Day. And uh, it's always um, a wonderful time to be able uh, to think about the many sacrifices men and women have made over the decades uh, and even centuries to protect this nation uh, and our freedoms. And so I just wanted to take a moment uh, to recognize those veterans in our midst. If you have served in the armed forces, would you please stand so that we can thank you for your service to our country and to ourselves? Don't be bashful. Just stand up. I know. I hear your point, Adam. He's not standing. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Following the example of Christ and being willing to lay down your life for your friends, for your neighbors, for your family. It's been an amazing journey for us as we've been going through the Gospel of John, talking about the ultimate individual, the one who gave his life not to save us from political tyranny, but from ourselves, from our sin. And today we come to the conclusion of our study in the Gospel of John, and we're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, Jesus has come once again to his disciples, uh, this time in Galilee on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, and he performs one last miracle, and the disciples haul in 153 fish, bringing to mind the earlier miracle in which Jesus then told them that they would no longer be fishing for fish, but fishing for men. And then they had breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus goes on to have a conversation with Peter, one that I think we would do well to pay attention to. So before we go any further, let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we, we thank you um, for these 40 weeks in John. Thank you for your servant who penned these words, who recorded for us the things that you said and did so that we might know you, come to believe in you, and by believing have life in your name. And Lord, as we finish our study this morning, I pray that you would um, speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us that you would prepare us for what lies ahead, and that, Lord, that we would just be ruined for anything less than your glory. Lord, speak through me this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Erwin uh, Lutzer, um, former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, and author said this once. He said, often we assume that God is unable to work in spite of our weaknesses, mistakes, and sins. We forget that God 
is a specialist. He is well able to work with our failures, uh, to work our failures into his plans. And as we read the closing verses here in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, um, we're going to find that this is especially relevant to anyone who has felt the sting of sin and the weight of sin and, and guilt and shame in their lives. It may be something that occurred long ago. It may be something recent. Our, our failures, no matter when they occur, have a way of haunting us and debilitating us and paralyzing us. It keeps us from serving God and serving others. We're, we're paralyzed by our past and we're joyless in the present. And the truth is the devil loves it like that because he wants to render us useless for, for the Lord and for his kingdom. Scripture tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And there's nothing more that he enjoys to do than to point the finger at us in the presence of God, pointing out our sin and our failures. He wants us to live under the weight of our mistakes. It's as if he says to us, how, how can God forgive you? Look at what you've done. And even if God could forgive you or would forgive you, there's no way he can use you now. You had your chance. You blew it. Folks, we will never be able to enjoy the present if we are wrestling with the past and worrying about the future. We've got to settle this. We, we need to really come to terms with, with, with a, a word in the Bible that I know we know up here, but I, I wonder if we really know it here, and that's the word grace. It's one of our core values as a church, transformative grace. As we look at chapter 21, verses 15 through 25, we're going to see that the solution to our sin, the solution to our guilt and shame is the mercy and grace of God. But we need more than a head knowledge of it. We need to experience it. Following Jesus requires total dependence on him and a total commitment to him and the grace that he gives us. And so this morning, that's kind of how I'm going to break down the message, talking about our, our need for total dependence on Christ and our need to be totally committed to him, to receive the grace that he has for us. And, and I warn you in advance, uh, like I did a couple weeks ago, point one is much larger. It's going to take up the bulk of the, the, the sermon this morning, and then we'll close with an epilogue. But let's talk about what it means to follow Christ in total dependence on him and the grace that he gives. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now these verses paint an incredible picture of mercy and grace. Now, we need to remember that um, Peter made an audacious statement back um, that Thursday before Jesus' crucifixion. He boasted that he would lay down his life for Jesus, that he would never deny him, that he was willing to go to prison and even to death for him. But just as Christ predicted, Peter denied the Lord three times. He denied that he even knew him. And what we see is that his spiritual hubris was exposed and his world came crashing down. And then while in the courtyard, after Jesus' eyes met his, we're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly. See, Peter needed to understand that you can't serve Jesus in your own strength. He had overestimated his strength. He had underestimated his own sin. And Peter needed to know just how weak he truly was. Only then could he be restored. As long as we, we, we think there is something in us, some strength, some merit, something that, that gives us right standing before God, God can't use us. God has to break us. He has to cause us to understand that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, that we are totally dependent upon his mercy and his grace. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing here now, I, I think Peter was caught between two worlds, one in which he was overjoyed with the fact that Jesus was alive, and another where he was despondent and dejected. Uh, I, I don't think they had mirrors back then, um, but if they did, you know, I'm not sure Peter would have enjoyed looking at it. I know that sometimes um, our, our sin, my sin, is ever before me, and I don't like looking at it, and I think Peter may have been replaying that night over and over in his mind how he had failed the Lord, how he had boasted of how great he was and what he would do for Jesus only to see in just a, a matter of hours his world just falling apart because he was unable to do what he said he was going to do. 
I imagine he wondered if he could ever look Jesus in the eye again. I mean, how, how could I after what I have done? And isn't that the question that many of us ask ourselves when we blow it, when we sin, when we fail? I know I have. I, I, have, I, have, I have wondered, I mean, how many times, Lord, have I sinned against you? How many times have I failed to keep the promises that I have made to you? How many times have I have to repent of the same sin over and over again? God, when are you going to put me on the shelf? That's what I have thought. And I know that, that some of that is because of my upbringing and how I, I was raised. But I have to get up every morning and look myself in the mirror and I know what I'm like. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of hide it from other people, but you know what you're like. You know how you have failed the Lord. God knows that too. And I think if I was Peter, I would have been looking for a great big rock to crawl underneath as if I could have hid from the Lord. But here, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't rub Peter's sin in his face. He doesn't even say, Peter, I told you so. I told you you were going to do that. I told you that this is where it would lead. Instead, Jesus ministers to Peter in a most powerful way. Jesus asks Peter, well, even before he asks the question, did you notice how he refers to Peter in the text? He calls him by his old name, Simon, son of John. You have to go back to chapter one of John to see that that's what Jesus, that's what Peter's name was, but Jesus changed his name. He, he, he said, you are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. Or that's in Aramaic. Or Peter in Greek. Both words mean rock. Problem is, Peter hadn't lived up to his name. And by referring to his old name, he's, he's almost causing Peter to go back in time and to remember who he was and what Jesus had said that he would be. And he sees his failure. It, it, hearing, hearing his old name must have taken him back. And then Jesus asks Peter a simple question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Pretty straightforward. And then he adds to it, do you love me more than these? Now for probably since the beginning of John's writing of this book, it's been a little unclear as to what the these refers to. There are three possible uh, meanings here. It could be that Jesus is saying that, all right, Peter, do you love me more than these things? Meaning, do you love me more than the, the boats and the fishing gear and even the fish? Do you love me more than this profession of yours? 
Jesus could be saying, do you love me more than you love your brothers? But I think it's the third option that makes the most sense. I think Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your brothers love me? You say, well, why would Jesus ask that question? Well, you have to remember that Peter had boasted that he had loved and was more committed to Jesus than the disciples were. In Matthew chapter 26, this is what Peter said. Peter said, though they all fall away because of you, I never will. In other words, I love you more than they do. I'm more committed to you than they are. And, and even if they fall away, I never will. I'm your man, Jesus. And I believe that this is Jesus' way of asking Peter if he still thought that he loved him more than the other disciples. That's what I think he's getting at here. And the the New International Version, uh, specifically the NIV 84, which some of you may have, kind of gives this sense. If you have that translation, you can look at it. But it reads like this. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? It adds the word truly to give you this sense. And notice, too, that Peter does not respond Yes, Lord, I do love you more than they do. He doesn't say that. Instead, he responds simply, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See, I think Peter has learned his lesson. He's no longer comparing himself to the other disciples. He's no longer going to you know, walk out on a limb and boast that his love for Jesus is greater than the other disciples' love for him. He simply says, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And that's enough. That's it. Jesus then tells Peter, feed my lambs. Jesus asked Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs or tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Scripture says that Peter was grieved that Peter had asked him, do you love me? Now, there's a word play going on here that you won't catch in most English translations. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, but John is writing in Koine Greek. So I believe that the first two times that Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he uses the word agapao, comes from the word agape. So that's the word that John uses. He translates in Aramaic, and this is the word. It's in the New Testament. It's the highest form of love that there is. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It is a willful, dutiful decision, an act of the will to act lovingly on behalf of the person being loved, regardless of the lovability of the person. 
It's centered in the lover, so to speak. Peter, however, uses a different word. John says that it's phileo. He translates it phileo, from which we get the, the, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It is a warm, affectionate love that one might have for a family member um, or a friend. So twice Jesus tells Peter, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I phileo you. John could be using these words interchangeably. He does so elsewhere uh, in his gospel. But given how precise he has been um, in his gospel, endeavoring to communicate the truth of the gospel, I think it's reasonable to assume that he is using these words to accurately reflect what Jesus said in Aramaic. And then notice verse 17. It says, Peter was grieved that he said to him the third time. It doesn't say that Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. In other words, the use of the definite article, the, changes this. So it doesn't appear that Peter was upset because of the repetition, but rather because of Jesus' word choice. It was that he was grieved because he said to him the third time, as opposed to how he had spoken to him the first two times. Jesus opts to use the word that Peter used, phileo, this third time. And I think Peter understood what Jesus was getting at. He even um, refers to it and, sh and shows this distinction in his second epistle where he writes in uh, chapter one. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. And then here's verse seven. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. The words are phileo and agapao, agape. Phileo with agape. Now, I don't think we can press the language here too far, but there's no doubt that God wants more from us than merely warm affection, more than just brotherly love. He wants our whole heart. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our will. He wants undivided devotion, unrivaled devotion. That's what God is after. And Peter responds one last time, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This is what Peter is able to offer Jesus at this point in his life, and Jesus accepts it because he says to him again, feed my lambs. You know, sometimes we 
fail so miserably that we feel that we're beyond redemption, that we're beyond restoration. And I think that Jesus knew what Peter was feeling and he addresses him in his need. And I think he also knew that, that Peter needed to look him in the eye and he needed to hear his own words come out of his mouth in reaffirming his love for Jesus. And not just once, not just twice, but the same number of times that he had actually denied the Lord. Jesus doesn't come out and say, Peter, I forgive you. He does him one better. He does something even better. He tells him, feed my sheep. In other words, what he's saying is, Peter, I'm not through with you yet. I'm not through with you. I have a job for you to do. And by this... Peter learns that not only is he forgiven, but that his life still has meaning, that he still has a purpose for his existence. See, it's, it's one thing to know that you're forgiven. It's another thing for you to know God still wants to use you. Because there's a lot of people, myself included, have felt forgiven, but then I have wondered, can God still use me? And, 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 it's, and that's not the way God operates Sometimes we can feel like we're robbed of our purpose, robbed of our future, and sometimes through no fault of our own. Sometimes it's not as a result of our sin. It may be the result of someone else's sin. And it's in those moments that we need to remember that God hasn't forgotten about us. He loves us. He is more than willing to forgive and to restore. It just dawned on me this past week that this is 2022. And next month will be the 30th anniversary of something that happened to me that changed my life. 30 years ago, I was going through the darkest time of my life. I felt like my life was over. I felt like there was no future for me. I, 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 I mean, I, I lost everything. And, you know, all the things that I believed were being challenged at that point in my life. And I remember there was a verse that, that said in Psalm 27, I believe, I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Again, I say to you, Wait for the Lord. And in December, I had a gentleman who uh, was my mentor come to me, living in Columbia, South Carolina, and he pulled me aside and he looked me right in the eye and he said, God isn't through with you yet. 
and, and the seriousness, the conviction or the confidence that I saw in him lifted my spirits. But then he did one better. He didn't just issue a nice, encouraging word to me. He then put legs on, <laughs> on it. He put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. And he, he looked at me and he said, I want you to consider coming back out to the beach and working with me next summer. So here was a, a, a guy who came alongside me and told me that no matter how dark things are, no matter how bad things may seem, I'm here to tell you God is not through with you yet. And I believe it so firmly. I want you to come back and work with me and serve the Lord together. And I did. And I've never looked back. Those words, he, he will never know what those words meant to me, what that offer meant to me. It was the biggest shot in the arm I could ever have received. And folks, I'm here to tell you, we're all sinners. We all have baggage. We have all denied the Lord and failed him in many ways. But Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from our sins and our failures. That's why I like what Richard Sibbs wrote in his book. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. If you think God has put you on the shelf, you are mistaken. God's grace is greater than all our sin. And he's not through with you yet either. Don't buy the lie. And it is a lie. Don't buy the lie that God can't forgive you, that God can't restore you, that he can't use you. His blood is sufficient to cleanse you of all of your sins. So you know what you need to do? Simply this, repent. Reaffirm your love for Jesus and get back to work because you've got a job to do. We all have a job to do. Peter discovered that he could not follow Jesus in his own strength. He learned that following Jesus requires total de dependence on him and the grace that he gives. Oh, and there's one other application here which is mainly directed to the elders and to some extent to the under-shepherds of our church. The true test of our love for Jesus is in caring for the sheep. I want you to, to note what Jesus says. First of all, they're not our sheep. They're his sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep or tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. You belong to God. You don't belong to us. But we are to feed God's sheep with his word. You know, that, that's our primary task. It's to feed them. Peter, Jesus didn't tell Peter, go build my church. That's Jesus' job. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. 
That's the number one responsibility of every pastor shepherd is to feed God's lamb and, and lambs. And we feed them with scripture, with God's word. We preach the unadulterated word of God. We don't water it down to make it palatable. We don't tickle people's ears. We don't tell the sheep what they want to hear. We tell them what they need to hear. We don't substitute man's wisdom's Man's wisdom for God's. Only the word of God, rightly handled and taught, is able to nourish God's lambs. I think that's why Peter wrote in, in 1 Peter, he said, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, following Jesus requires total dependence on him and the grace that he gives, but it also requires a total commitment to him. So let's look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus is telling Peter that there is a price that he is going to have to pay in following him. He's going to find that he's no longer in control of his life. That he will surrender his personal freedoms for the sake of Christ. And ultimately he will die a martyr's death. And tradition has it that Peter was nailed to a cross upside down in Rome. But whether or not that's true, Jesus is alluding to the type of death that he would experience. And, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes people have asked, if you, if you knew what the future hold, would you want to know it? Not in this case. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, after giving Peter a glimpse of his future, that that's a great sales pitch for following Jesus. But that's exactly what he does. After he tells him what's going to happen, he says, Follow me. Follow me, Peter. And you know where I went. I went to the cross. And if you're going to follow me, you may very well end up there too. You see, we too will pay a price for following Jesus. If we're serious about following Jesus, if we're not just going through the motions, but if we truly desire to follow Jesus, there is a price to be paid. We need to consider the cost. The time is long gone for playing games, for playing church, for just going through the motions. We need to understand that following Jesus costs us something. And if it didn't cost us something, then he wouldn't be worth following. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to all 
to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, the other day in our life group, I asked, you know, what, what, what does Jesus' death on the cross, how does that inform our understanding of this passage? And it was very clear that the cross was an instrument of death. And when Jesus said that we must pick up our cross daily, means we need to be prepared to die. Physically, yes, but certainly to die to ourselves, to die to our sin if we are to follow Christ. If we're serious, three things we need to do. We need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross daily, and we need to follow him. Now, in verses 20 through 23, Peter makes the mistake that sometimes we make when being confronted with God's word. You might be doing it right now. Look with me in verse 20 and following. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but... If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, apparently at some point in the conversation between Jesus and Peter, they go for a walk. Don't really know when it occurred. But Jesus and Peter go for a walk, and Jesus is talking to Peter, but Peter's thinking about John. Because John's following behind him. And he's basically saying, Lord, what about this guy? What about John? Yeah, I heard what you said to me, but what about him? And it's like Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm talking to you. Don't concern yourself about him. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. See, when we approach God's word, whether it be here on Sunday mornings, in your own personal devotional time as you're reading, we need to be very careful that we listen to what God has to say to us. It's so easy to listen to God's word through the lens of somebody else's ears. On more than a few occasions, I have heard messages, I've read passages of Scripture, and I have thought, oh, and so-and-so needs to read this. So-and-so needs to hear this message. <laughs> yeah, figured they weren't here today. <laughs> I, I take it you have thought those same things, okay? 
we need to be real careful. God wants to speak to us just as he spoke to Peter. And it's so easy to start thinking about what other people's response ought to be to what Jesus said that we neglect our own response and we fail to apply his word to our own lives. And not only that, we need to understand that God deals with people differently. He deals with you differently than he deals with me. We are, we are different people. We're gifted differently. We're made differently. His specific will for my life is not the specific will for your life. Now, there are many things we can all say, yeah, this is God's will for our life, including our sanctification. But God hasn't called you all to preach, at least not from a stage. God hasn't called me to do what you do. God does have a specific will, but we need to listen to what God is saying to us. Don't fall into the comparison trap. If, if you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus. Now, I, I don't know where following Jesus is going to lead you, um, but I know that if, if you're serious about following Jesus, it will cost you something perhaps even your life. Epilogue. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. See, John concludes his gospel simply by saying, I want you to believe that what I'm telling you is true. You can trust me. I was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, of his death, and of his resurrection. And John only included a fraction of all that Jesus said and did. Even if you were to take the other three Gospels, get them all together, do a harmony of the Gospels, you still wouldn't have a complete picture of everything that Jesus said and did. John was very selective in the miracles or the signs that he records here in his gospel for us. And so we have enough. God ensured that he wrote and the other disciples wrote what he wanted us to know. And it's enough. The question is, what have you done with it? God's word requires a response. Have you totally committed yourself to Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you to surrender to him today. If you have, are you totally dependent on him? Or are you still trying to live the Christian life in your own strength? Jesus wants to lift the burden of sin. He wants to lift the weight of guilt and shame off of us. He wants us to repent and believe, and he wants us to experience his grace so that we can be on mission with him in the world. It doesn't matter what you have done. 
doesn't matter where you have been. His mercy and grace is greater than all your sin. It's greater than all my sin. If God can forgive a guy like Peter, he can forgive you. He can forgive me. And if he can use a guy like Peter, then he can use people like us. Remember, God's a specialist. He will redeem our failures and our sin, and he will restore all who are willing to come to him. It's my prayer here this morning that we would all humbly receive the mercy and grace that he extends to us so that we might fulfill his purpose for our lives, whatever that is and wherever it leads us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings and how humbling it is to know that despite our failures, despite our sin, that you still love us, that you are still willing to forgive and still willing to restore us. Lord God, use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.